Um, I feel like praying, so can you, can you join me in prayer? Father, I uh, just pray that you would be with us this morning. We're going to take a look at King David, and, uh, and I just pray. Um, I know there's people in here who are waiting um, on something. And I pray that uh, what we talk about this morning would be fruitful in their lives and encouraging, and, uh, and that they would be able to take steps of faith as a result of uh, the things we talk about. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're starting 2 Samuel, and uh, 1 Samuel's, you know, Saul, Samuel, a uh, good bit of David, but 2 Samuel's really about David. David's the focal point. And so um, we're going to talk about David this morning, and uh, I want to just recap. David was about 10 years old when Samuel walked up to him one day and poured a jar of oil on his head. Now, most of us would be grossed out by this. <laughs> Um, but David was excited because he knew what this meant. This jar of oil meant that Samuel was anointing him to be king. And I can imagine young David, um, after they partied that, that night, he probably pulled out his play sword and he dreamed of fighting off the enemies, uh, the Philistines, in battle. He probably dreamed of kind of going into battle and, and uh, seeing his, his troops conquer. He probably dreamed of, of being a king on the throne, a crown, the finest clothes, the honor of all of his peers. And when he woke up the next morning, he probably wondered, when does it all start? When does it start? Do, when, when do my preparations start? Do I get to be, how soon do I get to be king? Whether he verbalized these questions, we really don't know. But we can imagine that these questions were hanging in his, his mind. Wondering, When? How many years before, uh, before I actually get to be king? And they, hang, they hung there in vain as he waited and waited while nothing special at all happened in his life. Until that one day when by a fluke arrangement and David's own zeal for God, he defeated the mighty Goliath and he became a national hero. Surely now, he thought, now is his time. Saul was still the king, but perhaps, you know, Saul wanted to do like a dual kingship. You know, it wasn't that unusual for the time, two kings at the same time. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe I'll at least get a high position in Saul's government. But no, none of that came. Instead, gradually and gradually, David became a, uh, a military commander. And he did defeat um, the Philistines in battle. Battle after battle, he won. And, and though he knew he was unlikely to be king just yet, he probably thought, at least now I'll be treated like a king. So I've, I've won all these battles. I should be treated like a king by now. But instead, Saul's favor, King Saul, his favor turned. And before long, David found himself running from King Saul because King Saul wanted him dead. For years, David was a fugitive on the run, and as the years drew on, all of his hopes for being king were dashed. David kept waiting for that breakthrough, but he kept waiting in vain. And, any, and all possible breakthroughs just kept seeming farther and farther away. How do we live in these moments of waiting? How do we live in these years between the dream and the fulfillment of the dream? What do we do with a vision that hasn't been realized? These are the questions we're going to be looking at today. How do we deal with these things? Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel, starting at chapter 2, if you want to follow along. So David was a fugitive. Yes, think the, mu the movie Fugitive. That's the sort of thing you should be thinking. He was on the run from the government. And not only that, but David had decided that the safest place for him was in enemy territory with the Philistines. And you have to understand, the nation of Israel was surrounded by a lot of other nations that they fought with. But the Philistines were the ones who they fought with the most because the Philistines were oftentimes um, taking over um, portions of the Israelite land and uh, enslaving their people. David's dream is to be king over a thriving Israel. But after years and years of waiting, this is what his situation looks like. He's a fugitive in enemy territory. Saul, who is king has spread all sorts of bad rumors about him around the country. And so David's hated by all the people. 
His best friend Jonathan has just been killed in battle. And King Saul, who was his enemy, was also killed in battle. And so you'd think, you know, David would get to be king, right? And now it's his turn. But Abner, who is Saul's high commander, has put uh, one of Saul's son in king, at the king's spot instead of David. His name was Ishbosheth. So David's not king. He's not even in the country. And there's this guy, this other guy, this king on the, in his place on the throne. And to make it even more humiliating, this guy has a much, much uglier name. Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth. I mean, how can you love your child and give them a name like that? I mean, what, were, what was that mom thinking? So, so David's chances of being king aren't looking too good. And really, you know, it, it might not even make any difference because the Philistines have just conquered vast portions of Israel. And in a few more years, they're likely going to conquer the rest. And it's not going to matter who's, who's the Israelite king because they're not going to be one. It's just going to be the Philistine king. So much... For David's dreams. I'm going to spoil the story here. David does eventually become king. But how did David go from being a hated fugitive to the king of all Israel? Was David politically savvy? Was he a military genius? Was it the result of Ishbosheth's leadership failures? Maybe it was just a thing of chance. So I'm going to do something a little bit risky today. We're actually going to walk through the details of how this happened for David. We're actually going to, uh, you know, a lot of times in, in, uh, you know, in sermons, we'll kind of spare you some of the details. Um, you know, like this country went to battle with them, and then they moved here, and this guy moved here, and this guy had a son. You know, we, we spare you those details because, you know, honestly, they can be a little bit mundane. Um, but, but today, we are going to work through the details of the passage because... I want to get into the details because God is in the details of this story, and I don't want you to miss him. I don't want you to miss him. So the, ris- the risky thing about getting into the details of uh, a passage like this is that you, uh, you might fall asleep. Um, and, and I'm actually, I'll, I'll be honest here, I'm a, I'm a little bit worried about this already because the last time I preached, I uh, looked up and I saw someone visibly sleeping. I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to name any names. But I saw someone visibly sleeping last time I preached. Um, actually, there was two people. Um, I'll be honest, there's two people. So, uh, the second person, though, was just closing their eyes, and I, I, really, I really think they were praying. So... <laughs> So, so I'm a little bit worried about this. Um, please don't, don't fall asleep, please. Um, uh, instead, instead, what I want you to do is I want you to enter into the story with me. Enter into the details of the story. Imagine yourself living in ancient Palestine with all these things going on around you. What would it be like? What would you feel like? What would, you, what would your family be doing if you were in ancient Palestine as this happened? Enter the story with me. And I, I, I think if you, if you can just trust me, um, all of these things are important, and they're going to come together in the end. So, so join with me. Are you guys ready? If, you, if you're ready, say ready. ready. Woo! All right. That is awesome. You guys are totally ready. You guys can do this. Um, you know, so all right. So I'm a visual person, and when I hear the, the word Philistines, that has zero meaning for me unless I see it on a map. I like to see it on a map. So I have a special gift for you this morning. Yes, you already saw it on your outline, didn't you? Let's see that map. Here it is. I have a map for you. Um, I know I did not make this map. Uh, I found it on Google. Um, uh, So uh, this is my map. And there's a lot going on militarily and nationally with, um, with... the Israelites in this passage. So I'm hopeful that this map will be helpful for you. Um, and, and, and you're going to have to stay with me. We're going to learn a few, few names and places and people. So please stay with me, and, uh, and this will pay off in the end. So I'm going to point out a few things. Oh, where's that? Uh, I need that. Uh, I have a laser pointer. It's on, it's on the remote. Isn't this crazy? We're, we're, doing, we're, we're like super high tech now, right? Okay, so I want to point out a few things on the map. Um, if you take a look over here, if you can see my laser pointer, here's the Philistines. Those are the enemy enemies. We hate the Philistines. Um, and what you see here is the uh, area, um, the green line around here is this is the nation of Israel. Um, those, are, those are the people of God. And um, let's see what else we got to need to mention. Israel, um, Jerusalem. You guys, you guys know capital of Israel is Jerusalem. It's still around today. It's the issue of many battles. Um, Jerusalem, right there um, in the middle of the map. 
And what we've got here, I'm going to point out some of the tribes. We've got the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Ephraim. These are groups within Israel. So Israel had different groupings and subgroupings. Um, and we've got 12 tribes of Israel. They're not all listed here because some of them kind of, you know, Gilead is a group of, of different tribes of, of Israel, uh, Manasseh and Reuben. And so here's the tribe of Benjamin. They're located down here. And here's the tribe of Judah. They happen to be pretty big, a uh, big group of people. So they're right there. And uh, we've got these different tribes in Israel. Um, also, I want to point out, we've got Ammon, what that is, Ammon. We've got the Arameans. We've got the Sidonians. We've got Moab down here. Those are just other countries um, that were surrounding the Israelites. So we're, you guys are learning a ton of stuff right now. Isn't this awesome? All right, Mediterranean. Uh, the blue stuff here, that's the Mediterranean Sea. You know, you guys, hopefully you know generally where Israel is. This is the Mediterranean Sea, um, and we're in the Middle East. Here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would have been uh, born. Um, well, actually, he was born in Bethlehem right there. Um, but then he lived up there. So, um, so, these, so here's, the, here's the last thing I want to point out about our map. These are real places. These, nobody's making this stuff up. These are real places in the world today on the other side of the world. And they were, still, they were real places 3,000 years ago when uh, the Israelites were around. And so these, these, uh, these dots here, Shechem, Bethshan, uh, Gibeah, um, these are all cities. Uh, large, these are the, they pointed out the larger cities on this map. So those are the bigger cities of the area, the metropolises. So here is what happens. Remember, David is a fugitive in the land of the enemy, the Philistines. And when David hears that Saul is dead, King Saul is dead, he considers moving back into the land of Israel. But he's concerned, naturally, that people are going to hate him and reject him. And so he asks God, what should I do? And God tells him to go back to his home country. And then David asks him what city he should go to. And David says, go to Hebron, right here. There's a line here dividing Judah, which is the southern half of Israel, um, from these other tribes of Israel, and that's the northern half. And that's going to be important later. So, you know, southern Southern uh, kingdom, northern kingdom. They're not separated yet, but they will be. So David enters Hebron with all the troops that have stuck by, by him in his captivity um, for many years, and, he, and they live there. And here's the fun part. While he's living in Hebron, the leaders from the different towns, you know, they're not on the map here, but Judah had lots of different towns. It wasn't just these. There's lots of different towns and villages, and each one had their own leader. And so the leaders of those different towns come to David's doorstep in Hebron one day, and they say to David, we want you to be our king. David didn't seek to be king of Judah. He just moved into Hebron. He found a place to live, but they came to him and asked him to be their king. And this is the first of many ways that we're going to see God's involvement here in the passage. It's a God sighting. And I want you to keep these in mind as we go along. See if, see if you, here's, here's a contest. See if you can't notice them before I mention them. See if you can't notice God's involvement. And so what's so crazy about this is that they all lived in different towns. And, and what happened here is they had to hear of David's arrival. They had to talk with one another. They had to move around and talk with one another. And then they had to agree that they wanted David to be king. And remember, these guys are kings of, of Hebron, kings of Ziklag, kings of Beersheba. They, they probably would like to have been king of Judah, right? Some of them are like, you know, some of them had to have egos. You know, I want to be the king. Not, not, not David. Come on. But they all agreed they wanted David to be king. They had to talk about it. They had to agree to it. They had to go with one accord to David and make him king. And you know how tough that is. What are the chances that all this would come together like this? It's a God thing. So David in the south, he becomes king. He lives at Hebron in the south. And on the north side, what we have is, uh, is we have the king Ishbosheth, um, who, was, who was Saul's son. He's, he's the king of the north. Ishbosheth on the north, David on the south. Remember that. So earlier I mentioned that the Philistines invaded the area and took over large portions of land. Let's see that second map. And what I've done here is I've drawn a line to give you a feel of what the Philistines did when they attacked the Israelites. They took out large portions of land. Take a look at this. This, this line is where, where they all, they, they had these military advances. They took these large cities, large cities, made huge inroads. And basically what they did is they divided Israel into like almost three sections, right? You got this, this section way up here in the north, the section in the east, and the south. The, I mean, it's, almost, it's broken to bits. 
And what actually happened while they did this is that uh, the Israelites that were living in these towns, as the passage tells us in 1 Samuel, they fled over here to safety. They, fled, they took their families with them and uh, fled across these towns. They even said some people east of the Jordan fled because they were so afraid of these Philistines. And they ran and they abandoned their towns and the Philistines moved in and said, look, I got a nice new home. And, uh, and so... Some of them probably stayed behind in their towns and they just became Philistines. All right, I surrender. I'll be home a Philistine. But a lot of them fled. And actually, my map is a little bit conservative. You know, the line could be a little bit farther. I also want to point out here that I've circled Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still under Jebusite control. Um, So you remember the Israelites were told to kind of go into the land of, of Canaan. This is the land God gave to you. Take over it. They didn't finish the job. They left some places undone because some of it, well, honestly, it was just too hard. Um, you know, so, so Jerusalem, they left it behind, and, and they left um, the people who were originally there, living there, and they were still living there. They were living in Jerusalem, and so the Israelites, you know, we know Jerusalem as the capital, right? Well, they didn't have the capital. So really, Jerusalem is under um, the control of a different group. Now, Ishbosheth who was king over the northern section of Israel, um, after the invasion, he goes to... He, he lost, you know, some of his major cities. So he decides to make his capital way over here. Um, he's known as a cowardly king, a poor leader, and uh, his location reflects that. Um, he went and he decided, I think we need a palace way on the outer edge here. Um, so that's where he's living. Um, now, what you can see here is that Israel has been broken to bits. Many of their major cities have been taken over. They're, they're almost divided into three parts. They have a cowardly king in their place. This is not a good picture. And the land stays this way for seven years. David is king of the south, Ishbosheth in the north. And the passage tells us that during those years, David's king, kingdom became stronger and stronger, and Ishbosheth's kingdom became weaker and weaker. Did you catch it? There's another God sighting. The scripture doesn't specifically mention God, but there's a clear implication that God is making David's kingdom stronger. Why? Because David has been chosen by God to be king, and God has a plan, and he's going to make sure his plan happens. He's working behind the scenes to make sure it happens. So during the seven-year period, the supreme commander of the northern kingdom and the supreme commander of the southern kingdom meet at the pool um, outside Gibeon. So the northern kingdom um, has their supreme commander. His name is Abner. Try to remember that. Um, And the southern kingdom with David, their supreme commander is Joab. I know we're getting a lot of names. Try to remember that. Joab in the south, Abner in the north. Um, And so, you know, here's, here, I'll take a little tangent here. Some people um, think that the Bible's not real, right? You know, this is just all fiction. It was written, you know, some guy just wrote all this stuff, and uh, we took it and we believe it's, it's, it's true just because we're, uh, we're blind faith sort of people. Um, and so there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, Samuel, that was probably written in the Hellenistic era, 600, 800 years after it happened. Um, how do we know this, you know, how do we know this stuff is true? Well... They met at the pool of Gibeon, and let's, uh, let's, so one day, oh, so here, let me say, the archaeologists are always digging up different places, right? They're always digging up places, and they, they wanted to dig up Gibeon, because they knew it was a pretty big town back in the day. They said, hey, let's dig up Gibeon, let's see what's there. And guess what they found? They found the pool of Gibeon. Here it is! This is the pool of Gibeon. And uh, you can, you can, you can kind of see this is the uh, wall of it. It's a huge pool, so no wonder it's a landmark, right? Um, so there's actually stairs along the back, and down at the bottom, it would be the pool area. And it's, it was a huge, monumental architectural feat of uh, the time period. What they did is they had this limestone area. They dug through pure limestone. They dug deep, 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 made a, made a huge cavern until they hit the water table. And then they were able to make a pool out of it. How cool is that? And uh, they, uh, some guy from UPenn, you know, was digging this up like 30 years ago. And he found, hey, hey here's the pool of Gibeon. And the Bible mentions this. Um, so, so you, you, you know, we aren't making this stuff up. They, they find these things all the time. Uh, we don't mention to everyone, but I just couldn't help it. I couldn't help mentioning this. So, um, so here's, here's the pool of Gibeon. It's a real thing. They made a pool out of it. It's got steps and everything. All right, let's get that map up in there again. All right. So Abner, who is the supreme commander of the north, meets up with Joab, who is the supreme commander of the south, and they meet at the pool 
of Gibeon. And we're not really sure why they met there. Um, the passage doesn't tell us. It, it seems like they're maybe both going to try to take back that town of Gibeon, which had been taken by the Philistines. Maybe they're both going to try to take it, and uh, they say, hey, fancy meeting you here. We really don't know. Um, but they meet there, and they both have their best soldiers with them. And like most guys who, uh, you know, soldiers, you know, they're, they're like, Hey, that guy is huge. Did you see the bicep on that guy? It's like the size of an ox's head. And, uh, and, and then the guy's like, you know, yeah, that guy's pretty good, but he's no match for our Jim over here. His, his, I mean, you know, Jim. He's, he's like, he's as fit as a racehorse. And, and so they start talking about how their guys are, how awesome their guys are. And they say, I wonder who would win in a battle, Jim or Joe. And uh, they say, you know what? Let's have a contest. And so they, they, do, they do like an, a UFC match of, of sorts, a gladiatorial games match, um, except um, they t- well, so they take Joab's 12 best guys, and they take Abner's 12 best guys, and they say, let's do a face-off. Let's see, who, let's see, who's, let's see who's got the best soldiers. Um, and so, uh, except, you know, this is a UFC match, except they get to use weapons. Um, so it's a little different. Um, Twelve matches later, they have all stabbed each other, and 24 of them are dead. But they still have something to prove, right? So they start fighting with each other, and at the end of the day, um, Abner, who's the commander of the north, he ends up killing Joab's brother, who's with them. And this is important because Abner... It's not just any commander. He is the supreme commander of the north, and he's the one who put Ishbosheth on the throne. He's the one with the real power. He's the prime minister. You know, Ishbosheth's just the uh, the poster boy. So, Abner has real control over the northern kingdom, and uh, one day he and Ishbosheth they get in a disagreement, and and Abner's like, you know what? I put you on the throne. I can take you off the throne, and <laughs> and so he leaves. Oh. We've changed to our title slide. Um, that's right, because I told them to put the map off. So he leaves um, Mahanaim, and uh, he heads down to Hebron. He leaves Mahanaim, and he heads down to Hebron, where David's at. And he says, hey, David, I want to talk with you. And David says, hey, you, you're the enemy. And he says, well, let's, let's, let's eat a meal. So they share a nice meal, and Abner shares that he would like to rally the rest of Israel behind David. And he can do it, because he's got these connections everywhere. And, uh, and David says, well, okay, sounds good. You know, that's, thank you very much. And so um, Abner goes off in peace. David sends him off in peace and says, thank you. And um, as he's heading out of town, Abner, um, you know, gets, Joab is coming back from a raid. And, uh, and Joab's like, hey, that's Abner. What is he doing down here? What is he doing? And uh, he says, you know what? I got an idea. He says, Abner, Abner, come on over here. Come on over by the city gate. Uh, I just want to talk. You know, you killed my brother, but, you know, let's, let's settle these disagreements between ourselves. Abner, come on over here. And so Abner comes on over, and boom, he kills him. He murders him in cold blood. And, uh, and this is bad, bad news for David because Abner is the supreme commander of the north, very popular, very powerful. He came in peace to David, and he left murdered by one of David's men. This is bad news. What are the people going to think of David now? So Abner is the enemy. He put Ishbosheth on the throne. David could have said, well, Abner got what was coming to him. No, David does not do that. Instead, David goes into mourning for Abner. He goes into mourning for him like a friend would. In fact, he, goes, he puts on his black clothes and he says, Joab, you got to put on your black clothes too you got to go into mourning for him, too. And we're going to the funeral. David goes to the funeral. He even follows the casket to the grave. And he even composes a song in commemoration to his enemy, Abner. David refuses to eat anything all day long out of mourning for for this guy, Abner, who is his enemy. And the text tells us that all these things made the people very happy with David. In fact, it says everything the the king did pleased them. David is ruling, you have to remember here, David is ruling over half a kingdom. The, the, the country is, is, is in shambles. The Philistines are on his doorstep. You know, this is a wartime. So, so daddies are getting drafted into the army. Taxes are being raised to pay for the uh, war. You know, there's, there's half of the country that doesn't even think he should be king. And David is enjoying incredible favor with the people. They love him. 
This is another God sighting. Another God sighting. We can try to credit David, say, hey, David was a great leader. But God has given David favor with the people. And the favor he has with the people is unusual for the circumstances. They like everything he does. God is arranging the circumstances to carry out his own plan. Well, Ishbosheth, who is king of the northern region, um, remember he's up in Mahanaim, he keeps getting weaker and more fearful uh, because his country just keeps going down the, down the hill. And uh, eventually he's murdered in his sleep by some of his men. And so Ishbosheth's son, or his brother, takes the throne, right? Isn't that what happens? You know, then the guy dies, the son or brother takes the throne. No. Here's what happens. All the leaders, remember, all those leaders in town here, town here, town here, town here, town here, all those leaders come down to Hebron to David, and here is what they say. Let's get that slide. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who really led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over all Israel. And what we see here in this God sighting is that God was working on the hearts of the Israelite leaders all along. David probably thought while he was in captivity, right? He, or not in captivity, but in, in exile, that he probably thought the people in the north, they like their king Ishbosheth. They don't like me. They've been loyal to Saul all along, and they're probably still loyal to him. But it turns out they always had liked David. God was working behind the scenes. And so they make a covenant and declare that David is king of the south, and he's king of the north. David is king over all Israel. Wow. Isn't that incredible how that unfolded? But it's not over yet. You may remember that Jerusalem, that famous city, was under the, under the control of the Jebusites. And uh, it should have been removed. They should have been removed years ago. Now, here's the thing with Jerusalem. You have to, you have to realize that Jerusalem was a really well-fortified city. Huge walls. Think huge walls. Think huge walls up on a hill. If you were to fight or attack Jerusalem, you were literally going to be fighting an uphill battle. It was very well fortified, and that's probably why they didn't take it so long ago, because they were like, this is going to be really difficult. And so um, it, would have, it would have been very difficult to take to Jerusalem. But David knows that this belongs to the people of Israel. We should have taken this. And so he goes up to Jerusalem, he attacks it, he conquers it, and he makes it the new capital of all of Israel. And he names it, he gives it a new name. He names it the City of David. And people all around the world still call it the City of David, even, even today. So the narrator comes right out at this point and says explicitly what he's been implying all along. Chapter 5, verse 10 says this, David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That is how he became more powerful. But it's not over yet. You see, David has been... The Philistines are not ignorant to this. They got their spies. And so they, they're saying, you know what? David just unified that country. He just took over Jerusalem. We got we to deal with this David guy. And so they send a message over to the Israelites, and they start lining up their troops. Um, they start lining up their troops right along this area right here. And they say, you know what, guys? We are, we are going to come, and we want you to hand over David to us. Give us your king. And, uh, and we'll, it'll be fine. Just give us your king, and we won't attack. But if you don't give us your king, we're going to steamroll town after town until we find him. How do you think that makes David feel? All of a sudden, David is stuck. I'm sure there's a lot of, lot of families in those towns that say, you know what, let's just give him David. You know, we, 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 we don't, we've had enough war. So David, you know, he's looking at the situation. He could run and hide. He's very good at that. He's very good at running, running and hiding. Um, or he could try to fight, but then he, if he came out of the castle, he would risk his own people turning him over to uh, these, these Philistines. Can he trust them to stand by him? So what does David do? He gets himself safely inside Jerusalem, up in his, his palace. And he gets down, he gets in his room, and he gets down on his knees, and he prays to God for guidance. He says, God, what should I do? Should I go out and try to fight those Philistines? And God tells him, go get them. 
Go get them. At the end of the day, they're going to be in the palm of your hands. And so there's two main battles. And in the course of those battles, David drives the Philistines back onto much of their own territory. And, uh, and David wins ba- two battles, major battles, drives them back. And Israel looks like it should, should look, right? And when David wins his first battle, he see- and he sees that the victory is his, he does something very unique. And I don't want you to miss this. Now, you, you, one could say, well, it was David's political prowess that, uh, that got him to this. You know, his, his military intuition uh, allowed him to rise to this place of success and become king. You could say that David was an incredible guy. He was an incredible guy. He was an incredible leader. That's how he did it. And you can see at this point, he's driven the, the Philistines back. They are, all of Israel is just like enamored with David. You just conquered the Philistines. We have our towns back. We can move back into our own homes. They are praising David up and down. David, you are awesome. We love David. They are praising David up and down. But David does something unique. He could have just taken the praise, right? He could have said, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, thanks. But what does David do? He goes out publicly in front of his people. He goes out publicly and he declares the source of his success. He says, the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. The Lord broke through my enemies like a raging flood. And then that first town where they had that first battle, he gives it a name to commemorate it in honor of the Lord. And he names that town Lord of the Breakthroughs. Lord of the Breakthroughs. Our God is Lord of the Breakthroughs, isn't he? It was an incredible course of events that took David from being a fugitive to king in just seven years. And David publicly declares how it happened. The Lord has done it, he says. David had a breakthrough, a breakthrough. But David didn't make make it happen. God made it happen. And as we walk through the events leading uh, to David's breakthrough, we can see how God brought about the fulfillment of the promise that he had made to David so many years before. And I want you guys to note here um, that that David waited something like 15 years between when, when he was anointed king of Israel to when he actually became king of anything. 15 years. There's about 15 years there. Can you imagine waiting that long? 15 years. Waiting and waiting. And David, in the time God was working on him, David had become a pro at waiting. So it was God who did it. it. Um, But I also want us to, to recognize that David was exemplary in the way that he waited. And I think we can learn some lessons from the way that David waited that uh, as we go, go back, I want to hit some, some ways that we can learn lessons from the way that David waited during that time period. The first lesson we can learn is that in order to wait well, you must know what your vision is. You must know what your vision is. David had a clear vision from God. God had specifically selected him through the prophet Samuel to be king over all of Israel. He poured oil on his head. That was very clear. David knew where he was headed. Where are you headed? What is your vision? Where are you going? It's tough, right? It's tough. We, you don't know where you're headed. You can't tell the future. Nobody, nobody's anointed you with a jar of oil. Now, a few of you may have some specific guidance from God um, about where he wants you to go and what, what he wants you to do. But for most of us, we don't know what the future holds for us. But does that mean we don't have a vision from God? Does it mean that we don't have a, a, a picture of where he is leading us to? I say no. You see, David had the vision that Samuel would give him, that he would, want, he would one day be king. But he had another vision. And I, I, I would argue it is a vision that we all share. It is the vision of God's will done on earth. The vision that, that God desires to fix this world and that every, one day everything that was, is broken would be made right. These broken things would be made whole. And I think it's summed up in this word righteousness that we see in the Old Testament a lot. Not a word we use. Uh, it's also interpreted justice. But, the, but what it basically means is everything right as it should be. And David was one who pursued righteousness. And that is why God was so pleased with him. When he was fighting Goliath, he was infuriated that Goliath was mocking and challenging the armies of God, and then he was mocking and challenging God himself. And he said, this is not right. 
And so David zealously pursued righteousness and justice in the situation. You see, we have the same vision of God's will done on earth as it is is in heaven. Our vision is spiritual health. He wants our lives to be spiritually healthy. He He wants us to enter into a real relationship where we're really connecting with him, where we're really praying to him, not just at meals and at church, but connecting with him all the time. Our vision from God is emotional health. He's leading us to a place where our marriages are the way they're supposed to be. That there would be, there would be emotional health. That there, would be, um, there would be interconnectedness. There would be togetherness. He wants our lives to get to the place where our families are, are at peace. And there's, there's unity. Where, where people don't treat each other in unhealthy ways. And that even if they did treat us in unhealthy ways, that we would respond in healthy ones. Our vision from God is, is yes, physical health. That is part of his, his vision for us. He never desires for our bodies to be wasting away. Sickness, the oppression of sickness and disease, those things are not a part of his vision. He desires wholeness in our bodies, in all of our life, all of our personhood, the way it should be. Our vision from God is Christian community, that everyone would be part of a family, that people would not be alone, but they would be interconnected and, and, you know, that, that, that even, even those who, who, are, who are isolated, that they would be connected into Christian community. Because as God said in the garden, it is not good for man to be alone. Our vision from God are the fruits of the Spirit, that our lives would reflect God's own character, love, joy, peace, patience, that we would be reflections of these. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, you know, all, the, all those things, all those things, those, those virtues. He wants us to be reflections of that. That is part of the vision God has for your life. We also have unique visions from God, ways that he's wired you, a unique role maybe that he's called you to play in someone's life. That is part of your vision. What is, what is that? What is that unique role that he's called you to play in someone's life or a role in the church? Um, so what is that? What is that thing? That he has created in you. These are a part of God's vision for your life, where he is leading you. Sharing our faith, that is part of the vision from God. That he envisions you sharing your faith with your neighbors and your friends so that they too can enter into that life-changing relationship with God. That's part of the vision. You see, you have a lot more vision than you realize. We have a lot more vision than we realize. But you have to know your vision. You have to know what it is. All of these things are a part of God's unique vision for your life. There's some unique stuff in there, right? But you'll never get there if you don't know what your vision is. You also need to be aware of false visions. David knew he was called to be king over a thriving Israel. That was his vision. That was his vision. But he could have easily have been distracted by all these other things, all these, all these other visions that were happening. He, he was a very popular figure after he defeated Goliath. Maybe popularity was the vision. He could have pursued popularity in the kingdom. Maybe that maybe that's was, was uh, what he wanted to go after. It was, I'm sure it was tempting. When he was in Philistine territory, he was a commander. He, was, he had troops with him. They, they were fighting. Um, they were t- made raiding towns um, around the Philistines. He was, he was an incredible commander. Maybe God's vision, I'm sure he thought, maybe God's vision is for me to become a Philistine king. I'm, I'm certainly doing pretty good over here, and um, I have found the, the Philistine king's favor. Maybe that's my vision. But that was a false vision. He could have just been distracted by false visions. So what are our false visions? Here's a false vision that you need to be aware of. Financial success. God's vision is for us to have enough, to have plenty. But not financial success, and especially not financial success as, uh, as a lot of people have come to define it nowadays, right? There are too many people pursuing that false vision. A false vision could be any sort of thing. What is that thing that you say, if I just had this, then my life would be better. It would make me happy. What is that thing? What's that... What's that if I only had this specific thing, you know, what is that specific thing for you? I want you to even take a moment here. Think about it in your life. What is that specific thing that I keep saying, if I just had this, life would be better? What is that false vision that you are tempted by? You know, a lot of, pe- a lot of single people feel this way about a spouse. Um, if I just had a spouse, that partner in life, then life would be better. Some people feel that way about uh, a job or a specific role in their job. And they say, if I just had this, uh, if I was just doing this, then uh, life would be better. What is, that, what is it for you? Is it possessions? Is it house stuff? What is it for you? Think about that. 
What's that temptation? I think we all have this, this temptation to pursue a false vision. You need to know the vision God has given you, and you have to stay intent on it. You have to be aware of false visions. Your vision from God is spiritual health, emotional health, physical health, God's will done on earth. That is your vision. The second thing we can learn from David as he was waiting well um, is, is that David believed God's vision for him. He believed that God would make it a reality, that God would make it happen. David believed that God was going to make him king one day. David could have thought, you know, I mean, he could have thought this. Maybe Samuel was wrong. I mean, he's just a man. Maybe he was wrong that day. Maybe he was just getting angry at Saul and they had a disagreement and he's just, you know, picking someone else because he's, he had a disagreement. That could have, he could have thought that. It wasn't, it wasn't a surefire, this is from God. There was some faith involved. He could have said, I don't know, maybe it wasn't from God. But he believed that it was from God. And he was watching for opportunities that would lead to the fulfillment of that vision. He was watching for them. And when they came, he was ready. He took those opportunities because he believed that God would take him there. So here's some examples of opportunities that David took because he was ready. When Saul passed away, David was probably afraid, afraid to go back into his home country, afraid what the people would do to him. But he moved back into his home country because he knew that had to happen if he was going to become king of Israel. He's got to move back into the land. So he took the opportunity. At one point, the people of Jabesh-Gilead, it's a small town, and they saw that Saul had been uh, killed in the battle. He hadn't been got, given a proper burial. And so the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they give him a proper burial. And David hears about this, and he says, wow, they gave him a proper burial. And so he, he takes the opportunity. It's an opportunity. And he, he writes them a letter and says, hey, guys, Jabesh-Gilead, you guys gave our old king Saul a proper burial. Thank you. And he uh, takes the opportunity to say, by the way, um, the people of Judah have just made me their new king. And uh, Jib, why don't you come and be, um, be loyal to me as well? He invites them to be loyal to him as well. Now, Jabesh Gilead, you have to realize, is up there by Mahanaim. It's way up in the north. You know, the, the likelihood that they would have been loyal to David, no, nah, it's just it's not, not very likely. But he takes the opportunity. Hey, by the way, why don't you come be loyal to me? Um, this, is, this is what's happening. So David was accepting... Um, David, you know, wrote, took that opportunity. He was also willing to accept Abner. Remember, Abner, the enemy, comes to him. But he sees it as an opportunity. Abner's got connections. An opportunity, and he takes it. And he invites Abner to have uh, dinner with him. David also knew Jerusalem. It was, supposed to be, it was supposed to be part of Israel. The vision is David, king over a thriving Israel. All of Israel. And so he takes Jerusalem because he knows that is part of the vision. David, king over a thriving Israel. David believed that God was indeed orchestrating the events of his life so as to carry out his own plan. And he took action where there was an opportunity in front of him. So what action are you taking based on God's vision for your life? What action are you taking? Now we say that we believe in God's vision. We say we believe that he is a living and active God. But are you, for all practical purposes, living like an atheist? Are you living practically like an atheist? Your actions um, don't show that you are depending on God's activity in the world. Are you never ready, expecting God to show up? Do you ever take risks that depend on God following through? Or are you living like an atheist? Are you living with the belief, the expectation, that God never really does anything? We're going to do a Jolly Rancher giveaway this Saturday. We're going to go prayer walk. We've been talking about this. And when you hear about this, do you think to yourself, nobody's going to ever be reached with a bag of candy? Do you, do you think they're just going to throw away that postcard as soon as they see it? Or do you believe that God can take our humble efforts to reach people and use them to change someone's life? It's a different perspective, you see. If we, if we want to wait well like David, you need to have some faith that God is going to make this vision happen. Don't be a faithless person. Have some faith in our God. The third thing we must do to wait well is that we must look at all of life through the lens of God's activity. We must look at all of life through the lens of God, God's activity. 
Everyone has some lenses through which they view the world. Not, not, not these sort of lenses. Everyone has figurative lenses. The people like to refer to it as like a worldview. This is the way I see the world. And uh, it in, we, we use this to interpret how we see events in life and, and to, um, how, we, how we make sense of it. Well, David was always looking at life through God lenses. He always had his God lenses on. Take a look at this cool verse. David has just finished conquering Jerusalem, and he's feeling on top of the world. And this is what he realizes. Let's, let's take a look at it here. It's that slide 512. Chapter 5, verse 12. Mark, can you grab it for me? All right, sweet. Um, David realized that um, the Lord had made him king over Israel and had made his kingdom great for the sake of his people, Israel. He had a realization. David realized that the Lord had made him king over Israel and made his kingdom great for the sake of his people, people Israel. Now take a moment and consider how else this could have, what other sort of realizations David could have had. It could read, David realized he had come a long way and that he'd accomplished a lot. That would be a natural thing to, to realize, right? No, David realizes that the successes that he has found have been a gift from God. He's looking at the world through God lenses. It could also read like this. David realized the Lord had made him king over Israel and, and had made his kingdom great because, the, because God thought he was a really great guy. It could say that. Nope. David realized that the happenings of history and the circumstances around his life did not revolve around David. They revolved around God's plan. David was just a piece of the puzzle. And he was looking through these lenses at his circumstances. So when David finally defeated the Philistines and began taking back Israelite territory, he said, God has done it. God broke through. He could have said, I did it. I mean, it was his leadership after all. It was, it was his military direction. He could have even said, hey guys, we did it. But he didn't say that. He said, God did it. Because he was viewing the world through the lens of what God was doing. Another thing that demonstrates David's awareness of God and his activity is how often he mentions David's name. And you, you may not have picked this up, um, but if you read the passage, I think it's something you notice about David in 2 Samuel. Watch this as we go through 2 Samuel. David is always mentioning God's name. His speech is filled with references to God. Here's a few examples. May God kill me if I eat anything before sundown. As surely as the Lord lives, who saves me from my enemies, I will tell you the truth. May the Lord bless you for being so loyal to your king and giving him a decent burial. It's just, his language is just filled with references to God. So my point here is that David frequently mentions God and God's name. And I actually went through these first five, verse, five chapters of Second uh, Samuel, and I counted how many times David is quoted and how often he uh, mentions God's name. In over half of them, he is either mentioning God or praying directly to God. Half. More than half. Most of the time, David is either speaking to God or mentioning him in some way. What if that was true of your conversation? More than half. The reason David talks about God so many times is because David thinks Breeze lives God. Um, and God is just always on his mind. And this is part of waiting well. You see, when you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for a breakthrough, it can feel like there's no progress, right? It may feel like God isn't doing anything. God is, God is not active. He's not doing anything. But part of waiting well is having the faith to believe that even though I can't see anything happening, God is behind the scenes working and orchestrating things for our good, for his vision, for his purposes. God is working. He's still working. David knew how to wait. 13, 13 15, 22 years he waited. 13 years he waited, and he was not a single step closer to the throne. But he had learned to see the world through God lenses. He had chosen to believe that God was still involved. What would it look like? I want us to think about this for a second. What would it look like to make God part of your conversation? The New Testament writers, they suggest doing this, in fact. They say, don't go, don't say, I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to go here and do this. Say, if God wills it, tomorrow I'm going to go here and do this. People, some people say, Lord willing. It's a very common thing. Um, that's what they, they recommend. 
And there are a lot of you here, you know, as I was preparing this, this sermon, I, I, I thought, you know, there's a lot of people here who are really good at this. Um, and I, I was actually wanting to mention names, but I'm not going to embarrass anybody and mention names. But uh, some of you guys, you can, you can easily bring people to mind whose language is filled with the mention of God. I, just, I, just, I run into this all the time. And uh, I think if you hang around our church for any length of time, you're going to hear people saying things like this. God did this, and it was so cool. God did this. They're going to say things like, yeah, we, we went here and did this, and God showed up. They're going to say things like, yeah, I, I, was, I was having a rough time, but God gave me the strength I needed. Just, just, happen, just happening to be mentioning God in their conversation. And you have to remember, this is just the external stuff. That's the external stuff. It's the, it's, it all started on the inside, right? It all started on the inside. It's a ref, those external things are just a reflection of what is happening in our hearts. So if you, if you just try to copy the external stuff, if we just try to start mentioning God a lot, that's not going to do us any good, right? We've missed the point. It has to start on the inside. It has to start with the way we're looking at the world. What would it look like if you had a constant eye for God's activity in the world? You were just watching, and you, you, would, you were seeing Him. This is what it would be like. Every time you experienced good weather that you could enjoy, you'd go outside, you'd, you'd thank Him for it. When you ate some chocolate, you would say a quiet prayer, and you'd say, Wow, God, you did a really good job with the cocoa plant. Thank you, God. When your plans didn't turn out the way you wanted... You'd say, well, I guess God had other plans. When, when you got stuck in a traffic jam, you would say to yourself, God thinks I need to work on patience. <laughs> when your car breaks down in the middle of the traffic jam, you'd say, apparently, God thinks I can handle this. <laughs> when you saw someone who was struggling, you would say, God loves that person. I should love them too. When life got tough, you would say, God must be trying to develop my character. When you enjoyed a good moment with your family, you would say, God has blessed me. God must love me. God is involved in our world. But you'll miss him if you don't look at life through the lens of his activity. And this is what it looks like to wait well. Once David had driven the Philistines back onto their own territory, the golden years of Israel's um, nation began. And they gradually, the Israel became more and more of a world power until they were the most powerful nation in the Middle East. And people all around the world look back on the, those years as the golden years of Israel's history. And they long, they long for that to still be the case. Jews look to David as their ideal ruler. And of course, many Christians all over the world look forward to a day when the descendant of David will rule not just over Israel, but over the whole world. And when he does, as the prophecies tell us, he will rule with justice and righteousness, and his kingdom will never end. But like David, we've got to wait for that day. So how are we going to wait? If we're going to wait like David, we've got to know our vision. God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer. That is the vision. God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not good enough to just know it. We have to believe it. We have to live it. We need to watch for those opportunities that are, that are leading us in, that, in, the, in the course of the vision God has set up for us. And we need to take action when those opportunities present themselves. And as we are living faithfully, and as things drag on and drag on, we need to be able to see the world through the lens of God's activity and not give up because we can see that he's working behind the scenes. And with faithful waiting, we will surely see God break through. Will you stand?